You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. This morning, we're going to be continuing our study um, in our theme of the study on Jesus and the law and the Christian. And so, um, for the last two weeks, Pastor Michael's actually helped us uh, extremely um, because he's done a great job at putting some building blocks together for foundational purposes as we work through the Ten Commandments one at a time. And so in the coming weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take one commandment per week and we're going to work through it together. And so if you didn't get a chance to work through or be here or listen to on the back end of Michael's sermons, I would highly recommend it because, as I said, it really helps provide a good building block um, as we work through the commandments specifically. Um, so during our time today, we're going to specifically be in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, just as Bryce just read to us. But before we jump in, I think it would be helpful if your brain is anything like mine uh, to kind of give some highlight reminders of what... Michael worked us through. So you should see it on the screen here. In fact, I texted him this week um, because I I so enjoyed his sermons that I had like 15 different summarizing points, and I didn't suppose you would want me to list all 15 of those. So what I asked him to do, and he graciously obliged, was to send me the four top things that he would consider to be um, our takeaways from the first two weeks of introduction. And so the first is God is our main lawgiver, and we can trust his authority. The second, the law is good, revealing God's character, exposing our sin and pointing us to the gospel and showing us what is pleasing to God. Third, Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament promised and what the law required. Therefore, we are not under the Mosaic covenant, but now under the new covenant in Christ. And the gospel frees us from the penalty that the law requires of sin and enables us to keep God's commands under the new covenant. Now that may seem like a lot, especially if you weren't here, we're going to work through this together. But as we think about this, and then as we read some of these points, and we look at the Ten Commandments, if we're under the, the new covenant, what, what do the Ten Commandments have to do with us if we have a relationship with Christ? Should we know them? Should we memorize them? Should I teach them to my children? And if I should follow them, why? Why, why should I? If, if we're now under Christ in the grace of the new covenant, why should I do that? In fact, Romans 8, 3 through 4 says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, so how do we reconcile the Ten Commandments that we find in the 20th chapter of Exodus with the fact that we have a relationship with Jesus under the new covenant? He's already fulfilled them. But what should we do with that? Now, Michael already began to help us think through that, but I'm just going to be real transparent with you in a number of ways this morning. But the first part of transparency here is I'm going to be really redundant in some capacities because once again, if you're anything like me, it, it takes time for things to sink in, right? So we're going to be redundant because our goal as your pastor, pastors is to ensure that when we walk away from the Ten Commandments, you understand exactly how they relate to your relationship with Christ under the new covenant. That you can absolutely have a conversation with someone that may not quite understand this and not necessarily articulate all the theological framework because that's not what we're after, but that you can have a, an intelligible and a grace-filled and a Christ-filled conversation about how we relate to the Ten Commandments. That's what we're after today. That, that's what we're seeking to answer. And those are some of the concerns, if not some others, that we're, we're going to deal with. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20. And what I always like to do, if you've ever heard me teach at all, um, is, is I like to try to set some context, right? So I want to I know what, what's going on. Before we just jump right into Exodus chapter 20, I want to set some groundwork on what's going on and where are we at in the storyline of Scripture and who the audience is. So we're going to kind of reconstruct some of this Uh, context here, right? Look back at chapter 19, and we're going to zip through this really quickly. Um, But in chapter 19, this is the beginning of what most commentators would call the main three uh, sections of the book of Exodus. This is this is the third of three. So it's it's the final main section of Exodus. And the reason it's a main section is because in this section, God gives 
what we call the Mosaic Covenant, right? And it actually begins in chapter 19. It begins to take a little more form in chapter 20. And so we'll work through some of this together. But the Lord gives him the Mosaic Covenant. And in Exodus chapter 20 is really the beginning of the covenant. So let's refresh our memories. What is the Mosaic Covenant? Well, let's start back at the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant is when God made a covenant to Abraham. And he said this, I promise to make Abraham a great nation and bless his descendants. So the Mosaic Covenant builds on that. So here at Sinai, Moses in verse 3 in chapter 19, he goes up to the mountain. And God proclaims in general terms the details of the Mosaic Covenant. And I'm going to give these to you on the screen. But in general terms, he basically says to Moses, if my people obey and keep my commands, this is what I will do. Look on the screen. He says, I will, I will make you my special possession. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. And then eventually we will see that God will fight for Israel and overcome all of our enemies. And that God will treat Israel with grace and mercy and forgive her sins. So God gives Moses all these things at the top of the mountain. So Moses runs all the way down the mountain and he reports back to the people in verse eight. And the people say, okay, we'll do all that the Lord has spoken to us. Moses is like, perfect, great. So then Moses continues to communicate with God. And then in verses 10 through 15, here's what God says. He says, Moses, get the people ready. Consecrate the people. Make sure they're ready for me because God's about to show up in a way that they've never seen before. And so Moses does exactly what God says. And then the full covenant, the full Mosaic covenant begins to be introduced in, in, in verse 34 all the way through the end of the book of Exodus, basically, right? So when we get to verse 16, let's look what it says. The Lord descends upon the mountain and he begins to speak. It says in verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mo Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then when we get to chapter 20, Yahweh gives the Ten Commandments to Israel. And this is when he begins to institute his covenant with his people. Now, remember what's happened. He's delivered them from Egypt, right? Remember the parting of the Red Sea, and then they're in the wilderness, and he's caring for them, and we'll look at that a little bit. But he does all of that before the commandments come. And so they are about to be the first hand witnesses of his form and his presence in some capacity. Prior to this, he always spoke through Moses. Ross and Oswald, in their work on Exodus, comment that in 19, the people of Israel are given a powerful display culminating in the events of the deliverance from Egypt, the providential care in the wilderness. And although they had experienced that providential care throughout the wilderness, they still would have been pondering, who, who is this God? What is he like? What's his character like? Can he be trusted? Is he an ethical God? Now, this is where I want to think about our context just a little bit. Because if, if, if we're doing ourselves favors, we'll do this together. They had literally just spent 400 years in Egypt, okay? Egypt was a pagan nation that did not know the Lord God, okay? So they literally lived in this culture that did not know the Lord. And so what do you think happened in that culture? Were they influenced? Did they see things around them that might not line up with exactly what we're about to see in the scriptures? You better believe it, they did. So they spent 400 years seeing what people in Egypt touted as truth about God. They saw all sorts of things, like things like the God that we know is, is of the world, and he is profoundly sexual, and he's fickle, and he's inconsistent, almost as if God is like this creation of man's desires and man's nature and and that he couldn't necessarily be trusted and he was often quite egotistical and an exploiter of people for his own gain you know as i thought through this it's not very different than a lot of what people in our culture right now think about god like this cosmic coke machine i deserve something from you and but can you really be trusted like god I, okay there's this higher being but i'm not i'm not really down with that like the culture is much more my vibe. And so I'm going to reconstruct on what I think you're like 
based on my own needs and my own desires and my unwillingness to submit and surrender to you. And so now, here's what happens in chapter 19. Now, the people of Israel are face to face with Yahweh. For the first time, they see a form of the Lord God of all creation. And they're waiting to see what he's like. Have you ever, you ever felt like this in your life? Like, what, what is God really like? Do I really trust God? Do, do I really know what he's like? Do I really believe what he's like? Maybe, maybe you've got people in your life that are trying to sort through all of this. I'm, I'm glad. If that's where you find yourself, we welcome skeptics here. We, we love hard questions. But we also want to empower you to have these conversations in your own context, right? So little do these people know that this God is the one true and living God. And everything they've seen for the last 400 years in their time in a pagan land is the exact opposite of what the God of the Bible is like. Once again, Ross and Oswald comment, the God is not the world. God is not many, but he is one. He cannot be manipulated by the world. He is not sexual and he may not be approached by this behavior. He never lies. He can only be trusted and only be surrendered to, and he is absolutely trustworthy at all times for all eternity. And further, don't, don't forget this, especially in a lot of our conversations in current contexts, our ultimate worth is found in that God's image, and they, we, display his image in this world. So without this God of the Bible, how do we even define the worth of humanity? Like, where do you think racism came from? Because there wasn't this ultimate objective truth of that we're all equal before God made it his image. Don't let me get off on that tangent, okay? So, so how did God choose, right? So they're wondering, what is God like, okay? We've seen this God be providentially caring for us and intervening on our behalf, but what, what is he like? And so how did God choose? How did God choose to teach his people? in this particular place in Exodus about himself. Always found this interesting. How did God choose to show these people what he was like? I'm glad you're asking this question, right? I kind of knew what your mind was thinking. The answer lies within the Ten Commandments. Or as in the Hebrew, it's more specifically said, the Ten Words or the Ten Sayings is what the Hebrew language would say. So while the people are still waiting to know what God is like, he gives his commandments. This is the stage the Lord has set to further reveal himself to the people of Israel. Look at verses uh, one through three. You're going to see the Ten Commandments. If, if you're kind of thinking through this for the first time, you're going to see the full Ten Commandments in verses three through 17. And then you're going to see the applications of those commandments in verse 22 of that same chapter, all the way to verse 33 in chapter 23. So here's what the word of the Lord says. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Gracious God, I, I do pray today as we work through the scriptures that we would see that these are your words. These are not stories that were made up by man, but these are authoritative words from the one true and living God, and that we would trust that. Lord, I pray that you would help me do what you've asked me to do, and that is to rightly divide the word, and worship you in spirit and truth, Lord. And I know I can only do that through the power of the spirit. So Lord, help me in humility to approach your word and to teach it. And Lord, I pray the same for our hearers, Lord, that you would prepare our minds and our hearts, convict us, Father, cut us to the heart. But Lord, encourage us through your grace and the gospel. And Lord, most of all, I pray if there are those that do not have a relationship with you this morning, Lord, that they would meet you, Father, for the first time from the pages of scripture in Exodus chapter 20 all the way to the book of Mark as we see your gracious, redemptive, intervening plan on our behalf, even though we are so sinful and unholy. Father, I pray these things, not for my own benefit, but Lord, for your glory, knowing that whatever glorifies you is for our good and for our best. And in the precious name of Jesus, I pray, amen. John Calvin once said that the fundamental problem in all law-breaking is always idolatry. I think that's a pretty helpful comment. Sinclair Ferguson actually once said that the first commandment of all the ten, it's not only the first in order, but it's also the greatest commandment. And all others flow from it. He continues to further say that it's also the first to be broken when we begin to trace our sin back to its inherent worth. 
let me tease this out, right? This was true in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve gave priority to the serpent's false reality. This was true at Sinai when all of this was going on and the people made a golden calf and began to worship that in the place of the one true God. This was true in the life of Judas when he chose to betray the Lord Jesus for a sack of gold. This is also true for us today when we are driven to anger or to despair when we don't get what we want and question the goodness of God. It's true for us today when we give all of our time and all of our attention and all of our money to something other than the Lord because we love that something and we fear that something and we value that something more than all else. And maybe there's multiple somethings that fall into that category. Most of the false gods in the 21st century, they, they no longer go by the names in the scriptures. Instead, they take the form of things like our reputation before others or our bank accounts or our preferences or our families or our homes or our safety or our children. Our worship to these gods manifests themselves with the devotions of our minds time throughout the day and our credit cards and our schedules. And all of it, don't miss this, all of it begins with the first commandment, putting other gods before the Lord God. We're going to walk through these three verses together, and there's three simple points for us that the text draws out our attention to. I'm not making these points up. I kind of worded them in silly words that this half-witted guy can come up with, but the, the points find themselves embedded in scriptures. The first of these is, these commands are the Lord's words. Secondly, the Lord clearly states who he is and what he has done. And then thirdly, the hearers are told that they should have no other gods before the face of the Lord. Look at verse one again. And God spoke all these things saying. Now let's, let's stop right there. I want you to think about these first few words just for a second. These commands are the Lord's commands. They, they didn't come from anyone else, but they came directly from the Lord. They are the, they are the Lord's words, and they reflect him, and they're his revelation. Alan Cole, in his commentary in Exodus, he says, Words is deliberately connected with the verb spoke. Now, he teases this out. He says the emphasis is primarily on their source. Secondly, on their purpose, and then thirdly, on their content. And so let's think back to our audience. The audience that's listening to this, this was a really important distinction. It was as if God was saying, these are not the words of any other gods that you've ever seen before. These are my words. These are the words of God whose power you just witnessed in chapter 19. These are the words of God that parted the Red Sea and pulled you from the grasp of Pharaoh. These are the words of the God that providentially cared for you as I gave you manna from heaven and quail from heaven when you wandered around in the wilderness forever. These are my words. Make no mistake about who the source of what you are about to hear is. Douglas in the New American Commentary points out that the Lord speaks directly to Israel rather than through the intermediation of Moses. In fact, this was so frightening, and you'll see this at the end of the chapter. This was so frightening to the people. They actually requested that they would have no future direct communication from God himself about his commandments. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid, and they trembled, and they stood far off. And Moses and said to Moses, You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Remember, they're still learning what this God is like. The interaction with the Lord was a more direct interaction than the people had ever experienced. He's directly speaking to them. Douglas further comments in reference to their experience in, in hearing God's voice. And this time the voice of God was accompanied by such audio and visual displays as to leave no doubt in their minds as both to his presence and his uniqueness. And, and I would add, church, even to that, I would say they would have no doubt in their mind about his power. You know, as I read and reread this verse while I was preparing this week, um, just to be once again transparent, I was significantly convicted. In, in my own life, how, how often am I satisfied with the incredible 
minimization of the Lord God in my daily life. Maybe it's a sense of indifference or a focus on or, or giving my affection to others, other things. Or maybe it's just blatant sin, choosing to go my own way. Maybe it's believing, if even just for a moment, that his power is unimpressive and lackluster, that the position I'm in has nothing to do with me and that God is not in control and that I can't trust him. And I wanted that God, but you didn't give it to me. And it's their fault. It's not mine. As if God can't, can't intervene in those moments. I, I, I mourned the fact that my heart's affections are so often given to other things. So many other things that are immeasurably less valuable than the Lord. Yet here at the entrance of the Lord's presence and his direct communication to his people, they're overwhelmed. Like they're, they're so overwhelmed. They feel like if you communicated with them again, they die. This reminds me of Isaiah 6. Like when Isaiah sees the presence of the Lord, he, he's overwhelmed. This week, um, I'm attending a conference down in Tampa uh, that involves our Department of Defense Special Operations community. And at this event, there's going to be a lot of cutting-edge technology um, that, you know, is pretty cool to me. And um, one thing I'm looking forward to mostly is one afternoon, more than 175 of our special operation community is going to be doing what they call a, a capabilities demonstration in the Bay Area. And this will include all sorts of things like uh, special ops helicopters and boats and ATVs and scuba and ground forces and simulated explosions and gunfire and all, all this, like, incredible, you know, demonstration, right? And my suspicion is this is probably going to be pretty impressive. You know, I'm, I'm excited to see our, our servicemen and women do their thing, right? But as I thought about this, <laughs> there are some days, most days maybe, that my heart is more excited about seeing something like that than it is about my relationship with the Lord God. Like the God that showed up in chapter 19 and then shares who he is in chapter 20 and taking it all the way to the New Testament, that's the God that I have a relationship with because of what Christ is done on my behalf, and yet I act as if it's no big deal many, many days of the week. Maybe, maybe this is something I should be ever cognizant of. Like, maybe, maybe this is something that I should seek to put to death in my own heart and in my own life with the help of the Spirit of God. And, and may this be true of my life. And so what I would say to you, church, is if you have a relationship with Christ, when you're tempted this week and beyond this week, to do the same thing, may, may you be reminded of God's power in Exodus 19 and then tie it in to the fact that you have a relationship with him. And may we cast, cast this down. But look at verse 2. Here's what he says. And I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. The Lord clearly states who he is and what he has done. He says, this is who I am and this is what I've done for you. He says, I am the Lord your God. This should take your mind actually back if you're taking notes to chapter 6, verse 2. In fact, this is where the Lord says this first to, to Moses only. He says, I'm the Lord your God. He's introducing himself to Moses. Now remember, this is prior to the whole rescue plan of pulling them out of Exodus, out, out of the Exodus, out of Pharaoh's hand. But he introduces himself to Moses. And now here in chapter 20, he repeats it again. But in fact, this time, he's not introducing himself to Moses. He's introducing himself to his people. It's like, hi, Hello. I'm the God that did all that. And I'm different from any of the gods you've ever experienced. And then he's about to connect himself to this redemptive work that he did when he pulled them from the grasp of Pharaoh. He's, he's reminding them of his gracious intervention prior to laying out his covenant. And I don't want you to miss this. Although he is God and although he can do as he pleases, because what he really deserve, what we really deserve, since we choose everything over him and always sin against him, is punishment. But yet, what does he do? He chooses to be gracious and intervene on the behalf of his people. You see a glimpse all the way back in the book of Exodus of this undeserved grace. Don't ever let someone tell you or don't ever believe for one moment that the God of the Old Testament was not a God of grace. Because he was. He was and he is and he will continue to be. 
it's this idea, and this is important, especially maybe for parents or those thinking about it or even grandparents. It's this idea that grace always comes before the command. What does the New Testament say? Kindness leads us to repentance. Grace always comes before the command. And so what other God that Israel has ever seen or known or come into contact with has ever done anything like this? Personally intervening on their behalf. It's a redemptive act. Check this out. This sounds going to sound really familiar to the gospel of the New Testament. It's a redemptive act on the behalf of a party that would lead that party to an unwavering loyalty. An obedience that comes out of that loyalty, not, not to earn the favor of the rescuer, but an obedience, a choice to, to obey because we love and we are devoted to the rescuer. Now, there's an, an implicit foreshadowing here to, to the gospel. In fact, you can look back into chapter 19 and see third day mentioned, right? So that should spark your mind, third day. We see a redeeming and a gracious God in the Exodus, even amidst a sinful people. And this will lead us all the way to the cross of Christ as he fulfills the Mosaic covenant and redeems us once and for all under the new covenant. So in verse two, here's what, here's what God's doing. He's staking claim on his people. You are mine. But yet he does it with a gentle and a gracious hand. You're mine, but remember what I did. He rescued them. This rescue is a direct reflection of his character. And they're beginning to see, remember, what is this God like? They're beginning to see what God is like. He is immeasurably powerful, chapter 19, worthy to be revered, chapter 19, yet personal and compassionate to see them in their plight specifically and personally and then intervene on their behalf. God is not distant. He's not distant. He's in your life personally. He's near. Amy and I often pray when we feel like God is far because of what's going on in our life, Lord, Please, Lord, help us feel your presence. Be near to us because we know he is. I, I, don't, I don't want you to miss this. It is incredibly important to read the Ten Commandments from the recognition of a couple things. From the recognition of who the author is, what he has done, and what he is like. Don't read the Ten Commandments a part of knowing who the author is, what he has done, and what he is like. The giving of the covenant at Sinai was never intended to be the way we get to God. But it was always intended to inform our way. What do you mean, Chris? I, I don't get it. Let me tell you what I mean. When we're given the Ten Commandments, when we're given the Mosaic Covenant, we have this initial recognition of our inability to keep the law. Because if you're honest with yourself, we break them all. And the scripture said, if you break one, you break them all, which we've already said, everything flows from the first commandment, right? So when we're given the Ten Commandments, the immeasurable weight is crushing to us. But then this leads us to an extremely clear picture of how unlike God we are, how unholy we are, and how untrue we are to ourselves and to our creator. After all, remember, the Ten Commandments are simply a mirror of what God is like. He perfectly encompasses everything he asks of us in the Ten Commandments. But then this leads us to grace. It leads us to the recognition that we need grace from the lawgiver Father, we see who you are and we wish we could be like you, but we recognize we can't, yet we know that your gospel can forgive us, redeem us, bring us from death to life, and then obey out of a love for you. It is at this point, church, that obedience births because of our love and our relationship with God. Don't, don't get it backwards. You can't clean yourself up and come to God. You can't fulfill what God is asking of you. But what you can do is recognize, Lord, I can't do this. Forgive me, Father, but give me new life. And this is seen all the way back in Exodus 20. Isn't that pretty cool? 
You see the gospel all the way back at the Mosaic Covenant. Now, I want to ask some rhetorical questions. How does this resonate with you, church? What does this do to your heart and mind? How often are we tempted to forget that what the Lord has, in, 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 has done for us and is continually doing for us? I was just thinking about this weekend. Amy and I prayed for something specific, and then it actually happened. And then we were like, wow, cool, that happened. And we couldn't even think about that. That's what we prayed for. You know, in my own life, I'm often tempted in my orthopraxy, in my practical outplaying of my faith, to act as if I produce my own strength. I act as if I create my own opportunities, as if I create my own successes or that a system gives me everything. But don't forget that God is the author of all of it. You don't cause your heart to beat. You don't cause your lungs to expand and contract. You don't cause your brain to send synapses to, the, to, to your mouth as fast as my mouth is running right now. I'm not causing that. God is the author and the sustainer of all of that. Sometimes I'm tempted to believe that, that I am and that God owes me. We often feel as if we're owed certain blessings and privileges. And honestly, probably more often, the way all of this is seen is where this, or where this forgetfulness is seen is when we fail to extend the grace to those around us. Can I get an amen? amen. We receive the grace of the Lord, yet we deny the same grace to those around us. We hold them in contempt because we think we're better we deserve more man look at them i can't believe how they behaved or what they did or how they didn't do what i thought they should do but whoo me over here i'm i'm awesome real transparently sunday mornings with families it's it's a it's an incredible time of worship and music and prayer in our house no it's not sunday mornings can be some of the hardest mornings of the week especially on weeks that i'm preaching okay so this morning, I may or may not have made a passive-aggressive comment to my wife as I walked out the door. And it upset her. And then I held her in contempt because my heart was harder than hers. I'm being transparent, okay? Guys, I'm not perfect. And as you can imagine, it did not encourage my wife before the Lord. And then we had to work through it. And I, I responded immediately godly when she came to me. No, I didn't. How in the world, how in the world, knowing the power and the omnipotence and the nearness of God, can I receive his grace in my life yet not extend it to my wife? How, how in the world can you do it and not extend it to your friend or your spouse or your parents? That makes absolutely no sense. You know, if God took that approach to me, he'd say, Chris, you, you don't deserve anything. You choose everything over me throughout the week. But yet he responds in kindness and in grace. God's saying that this is who I am, Israel. Don't, don't, don't get it wrong. Don't get it wrong. I am unlike anything you've ever seen. When we read the Ten Commandments, may we be reminded of our unholiness, yet also of the gracious and redeeming God who said them and is intervening on our behalf. You know, Romans 7 is actually a really good parallel here, and I'll zip through it quick. Michael kind of mentioned it last week, and we toyed through doing three weeks of introduction, um, but we decided to just do two weeks so we could get into the meat of the Ten Commandments. But here in Romans 7, in essence, what Paul does is he gives this illustration of a woman whose husband dies, and then this shows that that woman is no longer bound to the law of marriage because the husband dies. And you may be thinking, well, that's kind of weird. Like Paul's talking about the law and he's talking about the gospel. And what the heck does this have to do with a woman and her husband dying? That's sad. I'm not sure. I don't get it. Okay. And so although it may seem odd in context, here's what Paul's doing. He's using this stark example. Get your attention. He's using a stark example to prove his point about our relationship to the law. Here's how it goes. Just as the woman is released from the law of marriage when her husband dies, likewise in Christ... We have died to the law and we are no longer in bondage to the law, given that we can't keep it. But instead, we are now lovingly bound to our new spouse, which is Jesus Christ. And to, I heard an amen, I like it. And, and to continue that thought, we're bound to our new spouse, which is Christ, but we were bought with a price. And so Jesus did not save me and you for us to wander around and live in any way that we choose. 
He did not save us to wander around and live as if we make our own morality and our own ethic and our own picture of who God is. Why? Because God understands in his infinite wisdom that if we chose to do that, it would lead to our ultimate destruction. No, he he bought us with a price to live unto the Lord in his grace and empowered by his spirit. He's our new spouse and we love him. We don't serve him because we have to. We serve him because we love him and he's good and he's righteous and he never fails and he's long suffering and he always responds in kindness because he carried out his wrath on his son on the cross. You know, sometimes I feel, I feel like we fail to remember that when, when, when Christ says, Father, why have you forsaken me on the cross? It's not just that he was half clothed and he was in immense pain and that he was fully embarrassed and he could, he could have called legions of angels to pull him off that cross. No, what you've got to understand is that in that moment, the holy God of creation poured out his wrath on his son. And for those of us in Christ, we will never experience that wrath. Praise God for that. He bought us with a price. And so the Lord is staking claims on those that he loves, and he personally intervenes to prove it. He intervenes in Exodus. He intervenes at the cross. And what should our response be? (laughs) Humble reception and loving obedience. Birth from our love for the Savior. Look at verse 3. We're almost done. It says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not even have one other god before me. Everything is included in this prohibition. In fact, one translation of this verse that I think is helpful for us, and we'll talk a little bit more in depth about it in a few minutes, is, it, is, is to say, No other gods before my face. The hearers are clearly told that they should have no other gods before the face of the Lord. Now, we should hear faint whispers of Mark chapter 12, verse 30. If you're taking notes, write that down. Here's what it says. And you shall love the Lord your God with half your heart and half your soul and half your mind and half your strength. Is that what it says? No. May it be no. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I want to consider this just for a minute. Just humor me. No other God before me. Our hearts are deceitful. Don't believe the world. Don't follow your heart. David says it's deceitful. Follow the Lord, and then he will lead your heart. That's for free, okay? So our hearts are deceitful, and maybe we're tempted to put put this command in the most formal sense, right? Maybe we want to think about it like, okay, not worshiping a God other than the Lord. And our rebuttal might be, no problem, God. I, I, don't, I go to church every week. I give some money. You know, I, I pray to you. I open your Bible every now and again. But I don't, I don't pray to another God. What do you t- yeah, absolutely, Lord, no problem. I, I don't worship another God. Yet I want to put this up against the backdrop of Mark 1230. And, and I want to work backwards. So, so here's the real question. Do we love the Lord with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength? And remember, verse 30, verse 30 in in chapter 12 of Mark, this is nothing more than the positive form of the first commandment. Write that down. Mark chapter 30, verse 12 is nothing more than the positive form than the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. I heard John Piper once say that, and I love this because I can relate to it, and maybe you can. I think I think I put a slide up there for it. Uh, he says, yeah, here it is. He says, he has never once kept even the first clause of the foremost commandment. At the very best moments of his life, when his affections for God were at their highest and his devotion for God was the strongest, his heart was still polluted with indwelling selfishness. Then... We hadn't even gotten to verse 31 in Mark. Then when you add all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and then into our neighbor, right? That is all things physical and emotional and every thought and every intellectual desire. He is thrice condemned. And then the Lord adds chapter or verse 31, which is nothing more than a repeat of Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, 
we have to repent of this daily for how often we put ourselves over others. So, so it's really clear. When you start looking at Mark chapter 12, verse 30, we're lawbreakers. But, but here's, here's what I want to make sure we understand. We don't need Mark chapter 12, verse 30 to understand Deuteronomy 20, verse 3. I think it stands on its own. Look back at it. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. What is a God that the Lord references? What does that mean? Is it simply a crafted image that we put up in our house and bow down to? Well, it could be. But no, not at all. The God referenced here, and I want you to hear this, the God referenced here is anything that commandeers your devotions to God. Anything that takes the seat, if you have a little throne on your heart, anything that takes the seat over God in your heart. John Calvin once said that man's nature is a perpetual idol factory. Like we just continue to create idols. When the Lord says, have no other gods before me, what is he saying? He desires that no one or nothing should take position over him in any capacity. And this is all encompassing and it should cut to the heart and it forces us to apply this to all areas of our life. So either we think God is a lunatic or we believe him. And if we believe him and take him at his word, then we're all lawbreakers. Doesn't matter race, color, creed, background, family, status, class, money, degree, where you live, what you do, what you like, what you watch on TV. I don't give a rip. We're all lawbreakers. And we're cut to the heart. You know, I used to wonder as I read Jesus' words when he says in the New Testament, that if any man does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, that he cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Because I'm like, Lord, what are you talking about? You tell me not to hate people, but like you're saying, hey, you know, I don't get it. Here, here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. He says this because he knows his creation. He knows that we regularly give our affections to those things over God. He knows that we give our devotion to those things and other things over him as creator. It's this Romans 1 exchange, exchanging the glory of God to worship his creation over the creator. We'll mention that in just a second. And this hurts. I don't know about you, but this hurts, right? I love my wife. She's pretty cool. And I love my children. And I like my house and I like my car and I like when there's money in my bank account so I'm not stressed. And I like you guys and I like when you like me and I like my job. Like, I, I, this, this hurts. But none of that can be over my devotion to God. It just can't. And we're going to talk through why it matters. So, so my devotion in God is supposed to outdo my love for my wife and it's supposed to outdo my love for my children and outdo my love for my job and my house and all these things that you want to fill in the gap. And the answer is absolutely yes. He says in Exodus 20, chapter, or verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. None. And all the commandments flow from that. Yet how often we trade the blessing of trusting the Lord and obeying the Lord for the mere rags of going our own way, of trusting ourselves and believing we know what's best for ourselves, even though the word tells us we're slaves to sin. And even if it's early on in a sin and it's perhaps imperceptible how much we are controlled by that sin, you're not in control. Your devotion is given to someone else and you're controlled by that something. I don't care if it's anger. I don't care if it's unforgiveness. I don't care if it's a car or money. You are controlled by that thing in some capacity. This leads me to a bit of a segue, but not only should we see the prohibition of the command and obey because we see God as our creator and, and we see him as all powerful, but we should obey his commands because we trust and we know that he's good. Therefore, our obedience to his commands is never to earn his favor. It is always out of our love for him and for our good and for our best. And this could be further understand. I mentioned Sinclair Ferguson. I actually considered maybe just reading one of his articles because he just says a lot of way cooler things than me. Um, but, you know, alas, you had to hear me preach. So, but, but I mentioned Sinclair Ferguson again because he says that the commandments provide sort of a litmus test for us to help detect the presence of idols in our lives. And, you know, we have a hard time seeing this in the English translation. But if you were to look at it in the Hebrew translation, it reads like this. You shall have no other gods before my face. Not just no other gods before me, but no other gods before my face. In a way, the first commandment is given to protect us. Because God knows that if we don't keep the first commandment, we break all the other commandments and we'll go our own way and we'll be self-destructive. 
right? And so why is it important? You may be thinking, Chris, why, why does it matter if we say no other gods before me versus no other gods before my face? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you because it prohibits us. Listen to this church. It prohibits us from believing that we can have other gods in our lives as long as they don't take precedence over God. Don't miss what I said there. The rendering of no God before my face versus simply saying no other gods before me specifically prohibits any other gods, period. And that includes even lesser gods. Anything in our life can be deified. And the poison, listen, don't miss it, and the poison of simply having a lesser God. Oh, it's not a big deal. It's not over God, but it's still a lesser God. The poison of that belief is that eventually that God will not only take precedence and priority over God, but they will create an inner aversion to God that will soon become deep-seated hostility. If you love anything as a God, the moment that the Lord God tells you to do something that would go against that God, it will create an inner aversion and eventually lead to hostility. No other gods before my face. Not just no gods above me, no other gods at all, period. And when we discover them, what do we do? We take refuge in Christ. We, through repentance, ask him to help and forgive us and cast them down. Paul says, mortify the sins of the flesh. Put them to death. He literally personifies sin in such a way that if you're not battling it, it will overcome you. One caveat that I think is helpful to our practical discussion, and then, and then we're going to land this um, First commandment and 10th commandment are, are very similar, by the way, right? 10th commandment is do not covet. Um, and first commandment is you have no other gods. What's interesting to me is um, when you think about uh, coveting, right? John Piper says, we exchange for the glory of God, the value of God, the beauty of God, the all satisfying worth of God, where that exchange is happening and our desire for him and our satisfaction in him is getting weaker. Other desires are going to come in and fill the void. That's called covetousness. Now, why does this connect? In other words, if you have any other gods you are participating in, in this Romans 1 exchange, and if this exchange is not repented of, it will ultimately lead you to vote yourself to another god. So you can see the resemblance between commandment number 1 and commandment number 10. Now, here's the contrast. Commandment number 1 is strictly dealing with your vertical relationship with God. And commandment number 10 is dealing with your horizontal relationship. But make no mistake, if you don't get one right, you will not get 10 right. In fact, Michael mentioned this last week and we'll repeat it multiple times. The first four commands deal with your vertical relationship with God. The last six deal with your horizontal, horizontal relationship. You don't, get the, you don't get the foundation right. Everything else falls apart. Conclusion. I'm going to land this plane. I've said it a couple times. I promise you I'm doing it now. We've seen that these commands are the Lord's words. We've seen that the Lord clearly states who he is and what he's done. And we've seen that the hearers are clearly told not to have any other gods before his face. In fact, we can almost hear the voice of the Lord staking claim in his people. And as I walked through this in my mind this week, I thought, it's almost like I can hear God saying, you are mine and I am yours and I am your Lord God and you are my precious people. Remember what I have done for you and let me show you my heart and my character through my commands and just wait and see what I will do on your behalf because you are my people and I am your God. That's the Ten Commandments. Mark 12, once again, he says the most important is, and the scribes are asking him, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Because they, they've memorized the entire five, first five books of the scriptures. I mean, Deuteronomy, on the doorposts of your home, and make sure your children know these things. And so they ask, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus says this, the most important commandment is Shema. Hear, O Israel, getting their attention. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In these verses, Jesus sums up the commandments. He addresses the first four in the vertical commandment in verse 30. And then he addresses the final horizontal commandments in verse 31. There is a caveat with our relationship to the Sabbath. I won't get in that today. We'll handle this more in depth in the weeks to come. But to answer our question that we were after this morning, what do we do with the Ten Commandments in light of the New Covenant? 
How do we respond to them? Jesus gives our answer in Mark chapter 12. There's other parts in the New Testament that speak to this, but he summarizes the laws, all the laws and the commands of Scripture. And so when we read the Ten Commandments, we easily see that we're lawbreakers. And when we get to Mark, we see more even deeply our inability to love and to keep God's commands. And we're brought to a state of helplessness. But don't stay there. Don't stay there. We're quickly moved to meet the hope of the gospel. So Christ perfectly fulfilled the commandments. He experienced every temptation you've ever experienced. Every temptation you've given into, he didn't. He was perfect and he was righteous. And that's why he could stand on our behalf at the cross. Because if they just sent me or Eric or Victor, trust me, we wouldn't have been able to stand on your behalf before God. Why? Because we're sinful. But Christ wasn't. Fully God, fully man, fully fulfilling the commands of God perfectly so that he could stand in our place and take our punishment. So for some of you, your initial response today is to turn away from your sins and come to Jesus for salvation. And I want to speak to you directly just for just for 20 seconds. I pray through the working out of the first commandment that the spirit of God has clearly shown you that you're sinful before a holy God. And when your sins or when your knees hit the floor because you've recognized your sins before God, that it will be quickly met with the gracious, redeeming, life-changing love of Jesus Christ in the gospel. That's what I pray for you. And I pray that for you boldly because there was a day where I and everyone else in this room that has a relationship with Christ, we were in the same place that you are. I pray that God would breathe life into you today and bring you from death to life. And then for those in the church that know and have a relationship with Jesus, you already know Christ. Here's my prayer for you simply. I pray that the Spirit of God would reveal any gods that may exist in your life and that you would respond with swift repentance in a renewed sense of Christ's presence and a fresh spirit-led perseverance. May God be glorified. Let's pray.